Section 1 of Swordsman of Lost Terra. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Harvey. Swordsman of Lost Terra by Paul William Anderson. Section 1. Proud Carey Abroina felt like a ghost himself, shade of a madman, flitting hopelessly to the citadel of earth's disinherited, to recapture the resonant pipes of Killorn, weapon of the gods, before they blared forth the dirge of the world. The third book of the story of the men of Killorn, how Red Bram fought the Ganashi from the lands of darkness, and Kerry son of riach was angered and the pipe of the gods spoke once more section one now it must be told of those who fared forth south under bram the red this was the smallest of the parties that left killorn being from three clans only broina Dov, and heron that made some thousand warriors mostly men with some women archers and slingers but the pipe of the gods had always been with clan broina and so it followed the broina on this trek he was riach son of glindor and his son was Kerry. bram was a horan a man huge of height and thew with eyes like blue ice and hair and beard like a torch he was curt of speech and had no close friends but men agreed that his brain and his spirit made him the best leader for a journey like this though some thought that he paid too little respect to the gods and their priests for some five years these men of killorn marched south they went over strange hills and windy moors through ice blinking clefts of jaunt cragged mountains and over brawling rivers chill with the cold of the dark lands they hunted and robbed to live or reaped the grain of foreigners and cheerfully cut down any who sought to gainsay them now and again bram dickered with the chiefs of some or other city and hired himself and his wild men out to fight against another town then there would be hard battle and rich booty and flames red against the twilight sky men died and some grew weary of roving and fighting there was a sick hunger within them for rest and a hearth fire and the eternal sunset over the lake of killorn these took a house and a woman and stayed by the road in such ways did bram's army shrink on the other hand most of his warriors finally took some or other woman along on the march and she would demand more for herself and the babies than a roof of clouds and wind so there came to be tents and wagons with children playing between the turning wheels bram grumbled about this it made his army slower and clumsier but there was little he could do to prevent it those who were boys when the trek began became men with the years and the battles and the many miles among those was the carry of whom we speak he grew tall and lithe and slender with the fair skin 
and slant blue eyes and long ash-blonde hair of the broina, broad of forehead and cheekbones, straight-nosed, beardless, like most of his clan. He was swift and deadly with sword, spear, or bow, merry with his comrades over ale and campfire, clever to play harp or pipe and make verses, not much different from the others, save that he came of the Broina and would one day carry the pipe of the gods. And while the legends of Kalorn said that all men are the offspring of a goddess whom a warrior devil once bore off to his lair, it was held that the Broina had a little more demon blood in them than most. Always carry bore within his heart a dream. He was still a stripling when they wandered from home. He had reached young manhood among hooves and wheels and dusty roads, battle and roaming in the glimmer of campfires. But he never forgot Kalorn of the purple hills and the far thundering sea and the lake where it was forever sunset. For there had been a girl of the Da Sept and she had stayed behind. But then the warriors came to Rivan and their doom. It was a broad, fair country into which they had come, trending south and east away from the sun. They were on the darker edge of the twilight lands, and the day was no longer visible at all. Only the deep, silver-blue dusk lay around them and above. With black night and glittering stars to the east, and a few high clouds lit by unseen sunbeams to the west. But it was still light enough for twilight landers' eyes to reach the horizon, to see fields and woods and rolling hills and the far metal gleam of a river. They were well into the territory of Rivan City. Rumor ran before them on frightened feet, and peasants often fled as they advanced. But never had they met such emptiness as now. They had passed deserted houses, gutted farmsteads, and the bones of the newly slain, and had shifted their course eastward to get into wilder country where there should at least be game. But such talk as they had heard of the invaders of Ryvan made them march warily, and when one of their scouts galloped back, to tell of an army advancing out of the darkness against them, the great horns screamed and the wagons were drawn together. For a while there was chaos, running and yelling men, crying children, bawling cattle, and tramping hests. Then the carts were drawn into a defensive ring atop a high, steep ridge, and the warriors waited outside. They made a brave sight, the men of Kalorn, tall barbarians in the colorful kilts of their septs with plundered ornaments shining around corded throat or sinewy arm. Most of them still bore the equipment of their homeland, horned helmets, gleaming ring birnies, round shields, axe and bow and spear and broadsword, worn and dusty with use but ready for more. The greater number went afoot, though some rode the small shaggy hests of the north, their women and children 
crouched behind the wagons, with bows and slings ready, and the old battle banners of Kalorn floating overhead. Kerry came running to the place where the chief stood. He wore only a helmet and a light leather corselet, and carried sword and spear and a bow slung over his shoulders. Father, he called, Father, who are they? Riach Abroina stood near Bram, with the great bagpipes of the gods under one arm, old beyond memory, those pipes, worn and battered, but terror and death and the avenging furies crouched in them, power so great that only one man could ever know the secret of their use. A light breeze stirred the warlock's long gray hair about his gaunt face, and his eyes brooded on the eastern darkness. The scout, who had brought word, turned to greet Carey. He was painted with the weariness of his hard ride. An arrow had wounded him, and he shivered as the cold wind from the dark lands brushed his sweat-streaked body. A horde, he said, an army marching out of the east toward us. Not Rivan, but such a folk as I never knew of. Their outriders saw me, and barely did I get away. Most likely they will move against us, and swiftly. A host at least as great as ours, added Bram. It must be a part of the invading Darklanders, who are laying Rivan waste. It will be a hard fight, though I doubt not that our good sword-arms and the pipe of the gods will throw them back. I know not, Riach spoke slowly. His deep eyes were somber on Kerry. I have had ill dreams of late. If I fell in this battle before we won, I did wrong, son. I should have told you how to use the pipe. The law says you can only do that when you are so old that you are ready to give up your chiefship to your firstborn, said Bram. It is a good law. A whole clan, knowing how to wield such power, would soon be at odds with all Kalorn. But we are not in Kalorn now, said Riach. We have come far from home, among alien and enemy peoples, and the lake where it is forever sunset is a ghost to us. His hard face softened. If I fall, Carrie, my own spirit, I think, will wander back thither. I will wait for you at the border of the lake. I will be on the windy heaths and by the high tarns. They will hear me piping in the night and know I have come home. But seek your place, son, and all the gods be with you. Carrie gulped and wrung his father's hand. The warlock had ever been a stranger to him. His mother was dead these many years, and Riach had grown grim and silent, and yet the old warlock was dearer to him than any save Morna, who waited for his return. He turned and sped to his own post with the tires. The cows of the great horned tires from Kalorn were from meat and milk and leather, and trudged meekly enough behind the wagons. But the huge black bulls were wicked, and had gored more than one man to death. Still Carrie had gotten the idea of using them in battle. He had made iron plates for their chests and shoulders. He had polished their cruel horns and taught them to charge when he gave the word. 
No other man in the army dared go near them, but Carey could guide them with a whistle, for the men at Broina were warlocks. They snorted in the twilight as he neared them, stamping restlessly and shaking their mighty heads. He laughed in a sudden reckless drunkenness of power and moved up to his big, lovely Gorwain and scratched the bull behind the ears. Softly, softly, he whispered, standing in the dusk among the crowding black bulls. Patient, my beauty, wait but a little and I'll slip you. Oh, wait, my Gorwain. Spears blinked in the shadowy light and voices rumbled quietly. The bulls and the hests snorted, stamping and shivering in the thin, chill wind, flowing from the lands of night. They waited. Presently they heard, faint and far, the skirling of war-pipes. But it was not the wild, joyous music of Kilorn. It was a thin, shrill note which ran along the nerves, jagged as a saw, and the thump of drums and the clangor of gongs came with it. Carey sprang up on the broad shoulders of Gorwain, the tire, and strained into the gloom to see. Over the rolling land came marching the invaders. It was an army of a thousand or so. He guessed with a shiver of tension, moving in closer ranks and with tighter discipline than the barbarians. He had seen many armies, from the naked yelling savages of the upper Norland hills to the armored files of civilized towns, yet never one like this. Darklanders, he thought bleakly, out of the cold and the night that never ends, out of the mystery and the frightened legends of a thousand years. Here at last are the men of dark lands, spilling into the twilight like their own icy winds. And have we anything that can stand against them? They were tall, as tall as the northerners, but gaunt, with a stringy toughness born of hardship and suffering and bitter chill. Their skins were white, not with the ruddy whiteness of the northern twilight landers, but dead white, blank and bare, and the long hair and beards were the color of silver. Their eyes were the least human thing about them, huge and round and golden, the eyes of a bird of prey, deep sunken in the narrow skulls. Their faces seemed strangely immobile, as if the muscles for laughter and weeping were alike frozen. As they moved up, the only sound was the tramp of their feet and the demon whine of their pipes and the clash of drum and gong. They were well equipped, Carey judged. They wore close-fitting garments of fur-trimmed leather, trousers and boots and hooded tunics. Underneath he glimpsed mail, helmets, shields, and they carried all the weapons he knew. No cavalry, but they marched with a sure tread. Overhead floated a strange banner, a black standard with a jagged golden streak across it. Carey's muscles and nerves tightened to thrumming alertness. He crouched by his lead bull, one hand gripping the hump and the other white-knuckled around his spear shaft. And there was a great hush on the ranks of Killorn as they waited. Closer came the strangers, 
until they were in bowshot. Carrie heard the snap of tautening strings. Will Bram never give the signal? Gods, is he waiting for them to walk up and kiss us? A trumpet brayed from the enemy ranks, and Carrie saw the cloud of arrows rise whistling against the sky. At the same time, Bram winded his horn, and the air grew loud with war shouts and the roar of arrow flocks. Then the strangers locked shields and charged. End of section one. Recording by Paul Harvey.